Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, does Newsnight have a future? Do we still need a 50-minute late-night news digest? Or has Twitter irreparably shortened our attention span? Is data journalism here to stay, or is it just the latest media fad? Should journalism courses be dropping the shorthand and teaching them how to program algorithms within Excel instead? And Community Secretary Eric Pickle seems to have had enough of the so-called town hall pravdas. But do local councils have a moral consideration that publishing their own free sheets might be putting local newspapers out of business? Media Focus. And joining us around the table, as usual, are two of the media's best and brightest. Suzanne Franks is Professor of Journalism at City University, a former producer for the BBC and independent sectors, and author of several books on media and journalism. And John Bernstein, formerly of the New Statesman and Channel 4 News, now a freelance editor and writer. Does Newsnight have a future in the Twitter age? The BBC thought it had a coup when it poached Ian Katz, the Guardian's deputy editor, to draw a line under its troubles and move the programme into the modern age. He's tried to reach out to new audiences, particularly young people, by making it more viral, booking guests such as the Cookie Monster, teasing content heavily on Twitter and promoting the best bits on YouTube. Jeremy Paxman famously, of course, is not a fan and has left the show, also saying that people on Twitter have no lives. Suzanne, in the age of social media, instant analysis on 24-hour rolling news, etc., etc., do we still need a 50-minute late-night news digest? Or do you think Twitter has irreparably shortened our attention span? Well, maybe I'm not the right person to answer that because I, I was at Newsnight right in the very early days and I've spent many years there as a producer. So I have a great sort of affinity towards Newsnight and, and a great loyalty, as, as do many of the people that work there. We still meet up sometimes and, and, and I, I feel great attachment to it. And I must say that I think we, we do still need that, that kind of analysis. I think it does still, still bring something valuable. Sometimes at the end of the day, um, it, you know, when you chew over what, what's happened, it can bring new perspectives and a new way of, of sort of understanding what has gone on. I'm not saying it always achieves that. Sometimes it's incredibly boring uh, and sometimes it's, it's just plain silly. But I do, I still, I mean, I, certainly I would still believe we, we need that kind of uh, slot within our schedules. John, do you think there's a wider issue here, though? I mean, we had BuzzFeed on a couple of weeks ago who were saying that, you know, they're an incredibly well-read source of news these days and people want these so-called listicles format. They want to be told the top eight things they need to know about a story and then move on within 60 seconds. Do you think people's attention span is irreversibly shortened? I absolutely don't think it's been irreversibly shortened. I think um, there, there is a tendency to, to assume that people either consume long or they consume short and that we're living in this age where everyone's got a Twitter attention span or a BuzzFeed attention span or our attention span is 140 characters long. But if you look at lots of those 140 character Twitter uh, messages, they often have a link at the end and the link takes you to something that's long form. So I think the two things nicely coexist and I absolutely echo Suzanne's point that we do need um, those digests at the end of the end of the day. Interestingly, when I was at Channel 4 News, one of the things that I was constantly told was that some of the biggest audiences that Channel 4 News ever got were during the Iraq War in 2003. Why did they get those audiences then? Because you counterintuitively, you would assume that everyone was watching rolling news and would have got their news from the rolling news channels and there was no need to watch 55 minutes at the end of the day in prime time. Well, the reason that they watched at the end of the day is they wanted it to be contextualised. They wanted to understand what all this stuff meant. And Newsnight and Channel 4 News at their best do exactly that. So do you think the old will become the new again, that people are, are kind of going to move on past Twitter in terms of you know, getting very quick hits of news and then are going to want to move on to, like, like you say, more of a digested piece? I, I think the two things will just coexist. We, we, we do have this tendency when it comes to new technology or new media to assume that the new means the end of the old. 
And guess what? You know, cinema hasn't disappeared. You know, in, in fact, DVDs haven't disappeared, although you think you assume they would. You know, this stuff finds a way of coexisting. And I do think that the that Twitter and long-form journalism in all its glory will, will coexist. Suzanne, do you think that you mentioned the delivering quality first agenda? Of course, many people would unfairly say that it's the delivering cuts first <laughs> agenda. Do I you, hate that title. Yeah, so do I. Yes. It's almost as bad as head of values, <laughs> yes, isn't it, as we said indeed, off there. Yeah, it comes from the same stable. Yeah. Do, do you think that that's one of Ian's achievements then, that in spite of the, the, the relentless cuts to his budget, he seems to be, at least they're, they're not hugely losing viewers? Well, they are struggling to keep viewers, would be the generous, generous way of putting it. Clearly, I mean, I agree with everything John said about this. You know, there still is an appetite for long form, you know, considered journalism, but it is a very particular niche, niche market. And, you know, Newsnight's audiences are, are not extraordinary. But on the other hand, they've never, they've never been that big. But I think they will struggle now that Jeremy Paxman has gone. I do think they're going to have a problem now because I think he was so much the sort of identity of the programme. And I think unless they find another presenter like that who really can sort of carry this this whole um, identity of, of, of this particular form of journalism, it, it's going to, be a, going to be a problem. And who do you think that would be? Oh, my should, goodness. Should we play Newsnight <laughs> Presenter Lotto? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I rather like Eddie Mayer, actually. I think he... I'm a huge fan of Eddie. Good. Yes. I thought when he turned over Boris on when he sat in for Andrew Marr, I thought that was great journalism. I thought he put some very robust questions to Boris and uh, he, he answered them. And he does it very nicely as well. He does, doesn't he, John? Uh, yeah, and for want of a complete consensus around the ta- table, yeah, Eddie Mayer would be my first choice as well. I thought he was he was brilliant sort of post-McAlpine when he came in and did a couple mm. of shows. You know, that there's something around the tone of voice which is which feels much more now perhaps than Paxman does. And, you know, that ability to add a bit of humour and a bit of dare I say sarcasm into it works rather nicely There were quite meta those episodes of Newsnight post McAlpine weren't there because of course dominating the Newsnight agenda that night was Newsnight itself and it, it was weird to see the, the programme talking about itself But I thought he did it really nicely the um, the, the way that Eddie Mayer sort of caught, caught that moment and sort of made made that very very explicit I thought that was great but clearly there's a there's a clutch. I don't know what the, the collective noun is for presenters, but you can't just be around one person. There are other people like Emily Maitlis and so on. Do you think, I mean, who would best represent that kind of Newsnight tone if, if Paxman is going to go other than Sadie? Would it be, many people have put Krishnan and Guru Murthy, for example, forward. I yeah, mean, I, I mean, I think Krishnan is, a, is, is an interesting choice because I think he is the sort of undervalued uh, interrogator at Channel 4 News. I think he's very good at doing that uh, uh, attack dog interview. Um, and I think he'd do it very well for Newsnight as well. But there are some other people within the BBC that I think could do a very good job. Uh, Martha Carney, who used to work for, for Newsnight, I think she's an excellent uh, interviewer uh, uh, of that form, and she could do it as well. Um, but I think Suzanne's probably right. You do eventually need to find a single personality, a single person who represents all that is Newsnight beyond past Paxman. And I think they will probably uh, struggle a bit in the short term. But... Someone always comes along. I suspect it will be okay in the in the longer term. And can I just put in a mention for Kirsty Walk as well, who I think has done a great. I think great she's job fantastic. There. She's she's uh, brilliant and presu- and over this year, with as Scotland is becoming more and more an issue, I think she's she's really really been been great. Do you think the tone of the program might change on air now that Paxman's no longer there? I think it'll have to in 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 some way because it was so much built round his. It, it, his um, image, and also the audience figures were, were better when when he was, I, I believe, when when, when the, the nights when he was on. So um, you know, I, I don't envy Ian Katz at the moment, I must say. 
John, do you think there's going to be more interviews with Cookie Monster and Emily Maitlis line dancing and all of these various PR stunts? Is that the place for what Newsnight should be doing? Speaking very personally, I certainly hope there aren't more of those things. It's just not my cup of tea. But I think there is. I think when you are a uh, program editor, you are always looking for that light and shade. You're always looking to put a program together rather than just a series of discrete pieces. So you can sort of understand why they're there. That mix of light and shade. But sometimes the light sort of veers off into something that is you, you want to hide behind the sofa, quite frankly. Suzanne, it's quite difficult, though, isn't it? Like, as John says, mixing light and shade. There are very few journalists that could mix the two quite credibly. I mean, for example, Jeremy Vine, who used to present Newsnight, does a very good job on the lunchtime show on radio, too, because he can have the Prime Minister on, but then he can move to a, a piece on garden gnomes immediately afterwards. And I think there's very few journalists that can kind of credibly do both. Would you agree? Yes, I mean, that's a mark of a really good presenter, that they can handle both those things and they can sort of switch in, in an instant from, from one to the other. I mean, Jimmy Young, who was the predecessor of, um, of Jeremy Vine, you know, was, was, again, brilliant. You know, could Mrs Thatcher eating out of his hand one minute and, and, and then doing something. You she know, used to ring in, didn't she? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she loved him. Um, and then doing something, you know, utterly, utterly trivial the next moment. And, it, and it's a real art form. And to get the tone as well, to be able to, to, make, to make that, that change of tone is, is, is a, you know, quite, quite a talent. Let, let, let me give you a left field option if they if they're listening which which would be richard bacon who does a program on five live five live that's correct. between uh, i think two and four and i think he's very good i think he's a very modern broadcaster and he's very good at mixing that light and then going into the serious and he and he does the empathy thing very well um, five live as a station in terms of totally is quite good at that i mean nicky campbell for example at breakfast is is, is another broadcaster i would say that can kind of do both at the same time I think that's right. I think that's right. Richard Bacon has something. There's something about him. He's very good. He's an, he's an absolute enthusiast. I suspect there's certain people that he drives absolutely mad. But but I, I find that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of uh, curiosity very engaging. I think the final question on Newsnight for me is, do you think on any other channel it would have even lasted, you know, particularly on ITV as a commercial agenda? Uh, you know, this is one of the things about the BBC in the way that unique way that it's funded that keeps Newsnight on the air. Well, but Channel 4 News is, is always seen as the kind of sister to, to, to Newsnight, isn't it? I mean, they, Are they the only kind of... two programmes then that we've got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think you're, you're right to say ITV. That's a very good question. If it was on ITV, perhaps not. But certainly on Channel 4. I mean, Channel 4 is incredibly proud um, and just pragmatically, opportunistically, it does a very good job for the channel. You know, it's they, they've refused to move it from 7 to 7.55, which, you know, there's a lot of advertising there that is not necessarily going between the ad breaks at Channel 4 News that might be going on an extended version of Hollyoaks, for example. So they, they've made that choice. Um, so it's not just the BBC. Is data journalism here to stay, or is this just the latest media fad? It seems we have a new competitor to traditional reporting. Rather than hitting the beat with a pad and pen, this new breed of journalists hunts down stories buried within patterns of so-called big data. Popularised by the likes of Nate Silver, famed for predicting Obama's victory in 2012, I could have told him that myself if I'm honest, more traditional publications now seem to be adopting this approach too. And recently The Telegraph has just appointed a range of senior data journalists at the expense of the so-called traditional writers like Ben Brogan and Damien Thompson who will be much missed. John, instead of teaching shorthand, do journalism courses now need to teach reporters how to programme algorithms within Excel spreadsheets instead? Uh, I'm sure they. it's worthwhile teaching them to do just that, but it's certainly not worthwhile stopping them doing their shorthand. Again, it comes back to this, you know, one thing doesn't replace the other. Data journalism is very interesting. It feels incredibly now, 
it's been around for a very long time. All these new things are incredibly old, actually. <laughs> incredibly old. In fact, you know, just going back to uh, to, to my uh, career in 2005, I, I joined Channel 4 to at ITN to put together a website called Fact Check uh, around the... I remember that. Yeah, around the 2005 general election. I stood in that uh, as a parliamentary candidate. So I did, oh, is that yeah, right? I had to run... I really did go to that website to check anything oh, I was enough. about to say was true. Yeah, well, as you know, then Fact Check was... You know, the idea of Fact Check was that... Uh, and we completely aped the idea from uh, Fact Check sites in the States that had covered the 2000 primary and presidential elections and the 2004 primary and presidential elections. So there was nothing new in what we were doing. We were just bringing it to a UK audience. And it was taking the claims that politicians were routinely making and then putting them to the test. How do you put those claims to the test? It normally involves opening up a spreadsheet and looking at the data. Um, so data journalism has been around for, for, for a while. I think it raised the quality of the debate as well, because otherwise kind of politicians ended up in a, a debate cul-de-sac arguing over whether it was 82% or 77 and And in a sense, it didn't really matter. What mattered was how we got into that mess and how we were going to get out of it. It's very nice of you to say that it raised the quality of the debate. I've got a feeling that most of the of the uh, facts that we showed weren't facts at all. They continued to use anyhow, and they continued to quote because they knew that they 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 had some salience. So actually, it was a useful. We thought it was a worthwhile <laughs> exercise. But how much effect did it have on the debate? I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I certainly think data journalism as a whole is an interesting uh, thing to be doing because it adds rigor um, to our use of uh, use of data. Susanna, are the facts even relevant anymore? As John just said, you've got a website that we can check these things and they still carry on making the same false claims. <laughs> of course the facts are relevant and we've got to keep pursuing the truth. And we do, uh, at City University, we do um, encourage students to take data journalism now in addition to shorthand, just, just as Don said. We started a data journalism option. It's been pretty popular and very exciting seeing what the students do when they pick their, their particular data sets and how they interrogate them and what, and what they they learn about them. And what I always say to them, because they can, obviously, this isn't compulsory yet, it's only an option. I say to them, when you're thinking about what options to pick, this is the one that's going to get you the job. So, you know, pay attention to it. And, and, and I think that's right. Have they come up with any eyebrow raises so far, <laughs> buried deep within these, these data, hiding in plain sight? Oh, they've done all sorts of things. You know, they've been off to Runcorn to look at pollution in Runcorn with data sets there and then all, all sorts of things with sports stories. I mean, we, you know, there's it's still journalism. The point is they're still pursuing things that they're interested in and that are exciting, but they're just doing it in a very rigorous way. And the only thing is that they have to have some kind of mathematical aptitude. So, so some of them get a bit scared at that. But, but, so but they're doing shorthand. Me. You know, they're doing shorthand on the same day, perhaps, and then and then and then doing data journalism. So it's it's very much sort of part of the package. And some uh, universities are now offering data journalism as a sort of whole whole subject to study. I mean, a whole MAs in, in data journalism and uh, coding and algorithm and, and all, all those kinds of things. So that, that that's a big change. I, I imagine you students are as enthusiastic as they always have been, but do you think that there's a sense that, that, that journalism as a career is much more uncertain now? You're never going to get a job at the Daily Telegraph and expect to keep that for 30 years. Do you think the, the students starting your courses go into that fully with their eyes open these days? Well, they're still pretty idealistic, a lot of them, and uh, still very committed. And I think they they don't expect a, a job for life in that to that extent. But what we're teaching them really is a series of transferable skills 
and they are using different combinations of those skills at, at different stages in their lives. They, a lot of the jobs they go into to start with are jobs that probably didn't exist five years ago in, in sort of social media jobs, that, that kind of thing. But then the kind of rigorous things that they've learned about how to write, how to do an interview, how to check something, how to, to interrogate data, all of those things are then key skills that, that then will take them further up or on, onto the next job and and build up you know a life in journalism it might not be the same the same career that um some somebody like john or i would have had but uh but they're, they're still very enthused and we still have you know high numbers of applications and, and some very good students are they used to kind of mixed media nowadays or do they still come in saying i want to be a print journalist i want to be uh, active on the broadcast media or do they just kind of want to think i want to be a journalist well we encourage them more and more to think of themselves only as a multimedia journalist. And some of them come in saying that, but they realise pretty quickly that saying that, oh, I don't do radio or, you know, I'm no good with editing and this kind of thing isn't going to get you very far. You might not have to be utterly brilliant at it, but you've got to show these skills on, on all platforms if, you, if you're going to make a, make a fist of it in, in, in this world now, I think. John, you were multimedia editor at Channel 4. Clearly, you, when people applied to you for jobs, you wanted them to be all-rounders, did you not? Yeah, and I wanted them to be journalists first and foremost who understand uh, how to tell a story and how to write and do all those fundamental things. And then some of the stuff that you get them to do, you can teach them. So teaching them how to use content management systems is not particularly difficult. Teaching them to use Google Analytics or whatever the piece of analytics software you're using is not particularly difficult. You want them to have some mathematical aptitude because that's what we were doing at the time. But I think it does start with you know having an aptitude for journalism. I really do. Do you think that people that you've worked with accept a greater sense of uncertainty in their career or was it ever thus? Some of them accept a greater uncertainty. Some of the journalists that I meet that are are new, you know, that just come out of university uh, accept it. And some of them assume that they will be the sketch writer for the Times in a couple of years' time. And you have to say, actually, this is a really tough profession to be going into and you need to hedge your bets somewhat. And absolutely, as Suzanne says, you know, it's about being a multimedia journalist and having this you know this tool set of, of of skills that you can apply and it may not you may not end up being a journalist indeed but you also may end up being a journalist writing for a very dull business to business title but if you learn Whole your journalism, business weekly with yeah. apologies to that magazine if it exists yeah, no, <laughs> you know and that's what i started writing about really you know very very dry subjects but but in terms of learning and being given the opportunity to write um and to go out and meet people and interview people and turn that into stories you know, that was a great place to start. Whereas if you sort of think, I can only work in these three publications or for, for this broadcaster, then you're really restricting your opportunities, I think, as a journalist. I think journalism gives you a lot of transferable skills, doesn't it? I mean, I, I work in public relations and I work with a lot of former journalists. Uh, I don't know if that's gamekeeper turned poach on the other way around, really. But, uh, you know, I, I've, again, like you said, that, that skill to identify a story and write something up or present it in the best possible way, the most eye-catching way, works whether you're being paid by a company to, uh, to put their best case forward or whether you're trying to write a story that's going to engage the readers. I think it absolutely gives you those transferable skills. I think you're absolutely right. And... Uh, Again, personally, I, uh, about a year ago, I decided to go freelance and I kind of just made a list of the things that I thought I could do and that I was vaguely good at and decided that those were the things I wanted to do and all those boring meetings I don't want to be in. Yeah. And could I carve out a career out all of those All the corporate things? politics you've said goodbye exactly. to. Well, yes, I think so, mostly. So, you know, and, and then it was a case of saying, OK, can I get work in those things? And some of them are very directly related, you know, writing and editing, very directly related to what I've always done. But some things like chairing debates and... Uh, and doing training is, you know, it's not directly connected, but it, it, it all comes out of the journalism. 
Suzanne, you've had a bit of a portfolio career, of course, as we described at the beginning. Uh, do you think that that's uh, par for the course these days? Is it, is it what you'd recommend to your students? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the students who are coming out of university now are probably going to be working till they're in their 70s. So the idea that you're going to go into one job at 22 and still be doing it for 50 years later it would be deathly boring, wouldn't it? Oh, the thought I think of me have... working in my 70s fills me with horror. I don't want to work now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've been born in the wrong generation then, haven't Clearly. you? Um, no, I, I think uh, the, the idea of taking opportunities as they come and finding your path through with, as we already said, with these transferable skills and building those skills and doing things with them on, and capitalising on them. I'm sure when John started out, he didn't know he was going to end up as a multimedia editor because probably multimedia didn't exist then. So being able to take those opportunities. And what we do is we distinguish really between these kind of enduring skills like telling a story, being able to write, which are skills that have always been that were in journalism in the in the 18th century are still the same today with understanding how modern media works and being able to to tell your story on on all these fancy new platforms which which again didn't exist even just a few years ago who knows it's, what it's, platforms will exist 10 years from now absolutely yes but it doesn't really matter because as long as you've got the the enduring skills of, of journalism that we talked about before then you you'll have to adapt to whatever those platforms are but do you not kind of shed a, a little tear when you read that The Telegraph are getting rid of really good journalists like Ben Brogan, Damien Thompson, people like this? You know, I, I might be an old giffer and uh, old school, as it were, but uh, they were proper journalists. I didn't necessarily agree with everything they said, but they were always highly readable. And I, I you know, I regret the loss of journalists like that. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone that works in this industry regrets the loss of, of, of journalists. And there's no reason necessarily why, you know, this new breed of data journalists should you know, sound the death knell for this older breed of uh, of journalists. It smacks a little bit of PR, doesn't it, that they're using this higher that they would do anyway to, to maybe make a few cuts that were inevitable as well. You slightly wonder, and, and, and if the objective here is to bring in a bunch of young journalists at, at, at lower cost, and that's the objective, then then that's that's a concern. But if the objective here is to, to recognise that there is this there is this new discipline or newish discipline, however we want to describe it, of data journalism, which does, by the way, serve an audience need, it, it does kind of bring order to the chaos that is the internet full of all this information. The idea of data, you know, bringing data to bear on some of these subjects is an incredibly useful thing to do. But is that and the old school journalism, are those two things mutually exclusive? Absolutely not. So if it's just a way of masking uh, cuts, then I, I think it's worrying. It's unfair to single out the Telegraph, but do you not think that uh, they're being a little bit short-sighted with all these cuts? I mean, clearly they're a business, we understand that, but on the other hand, they're not, you know, a business in the sense of they're selling flowers down their shop, are they? They have a duty to society to provide a readable newspaper and have the appropriate resources. And I'd, Do you think they still are? Well, they've, they've taken a particular view of, of, of how to, to change things. And I mean, to be fair, newspapers and, you know, media big media conglomerates have many times sort of changed direction or, or sacked certain people and gone off in a new way and, and editors and senior people want to want to make their mark. So it, it's sad, but I think we can't, can't be too nostalgic and it's not just a function of today necessarily. And also the way they're justifying it is saying that they're looking at their journalism, but they're looking at how they then are, are bringing the message of their journalism, how they're disseminating it and, 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 and doing that in the, in the best possible way. And, and the, the Telegraph do make healthy profit and that's not one of the few yeah i was going to say not to be sniffed at and now when when so many 
uh, their competitors are, are losing money hand over fist. Who is making money? Last question, John, on this. Who is making money in uh, newspapers these days? In newspapers, oh, it's a very good question. I've... The Guardian's make, losing... Uh, the Times Ridiculous. The Times is losing... No. Is the sun profitable? I should know this, but I don't. I, I, don't. I guess the yes, sun, the sun, is, is, the the sun, sun is, is profitable. profitable. Yes, yes, and you're starting to see some uplift in terms of digital uh, revenues and indeed, you know, the, the, certainly the Mail Online and indeed the Guardian, the much mm. maligned Guardian, giving it all away for free. Actually, the, the revenues are starting to come in. Will those replace the revenues that are being lost on print? It's interesting because I used to read the Times probably two or three times a week online and when it went behind a paywall, I wrote a blog post saying this is ridiculous, no one will ever pay and I certainly won't. And within about a month, I thought, I quite miss the Times, I'll... Um, I'll, I'll subscribe. And then, of course, because I subscribe, rather than reading it two or three times a week, I read it every day because I wanted my money's worth. And now I'm a committed Times reader. And I also uh, am a closet uh, Daily Telegraph reader as well. <laughs> I would never admit to it publicly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it is interesting. I, I think a lot of people are prepared to pay for journalism. But, but, and, but that's and also what you've just said is very interesting because the advertisers will love that that you, you then become committed and there's more and more eyeballing these, these digital ads that, that, that are there because that, that's the problem. with That's why the, the revenue from digital advertising is so poor because the idea is people that just fleetingly um, look at it and, and, and they, they don't sort of absorb it in the way that they do when they see an advert in a newspaper. But if people are, are spending more and more time on newspaper websites looking at them, then, then there's prospects for the advertising um, yield from that to increase. The, the trouble is, Paul, they need a lot more people like you. Because mm. if you look at Reuters does a very good annual survey mm. and, and uh, one of the questions it asks is, would you be prepared to, and indeed have you paid for news? And it's stubbornly around the 10% mark for the UK. It's higher in it's other countries. Intent. One of the interesting things from actually this year's uh, Reuters numbers was the fact that actually people, I think, 18 to 24-year-olds were just as likely, if not slightly more likely, to pay for news, which kind of goes against the grain or goes against what you know, the, uh, the expectations you might already have. So maybe that's a crumb of comfort, but still it's only around the sort of one in ten mark. Um, so we need more of you. Local government is once again vexing the minds of both the media and central government. Community Secretary Eric Pickle seems to have had enough of the so-called town hall pravdas, newsletters which local councils put out to advertise their accomplishments and make legal announcements. And now the National Association of Local Councils has published non-compulsory guidance to councillors, telling them not to talk to the local or national press without the permission of town clerks. Eric Pickles, of course, has stormed in in his characteristic style, calling this new guidance Stalinist. Suzanne, do local councils have a moral consideration that publishing their own free sheets might be putting local newspapers out of business? Oh, I totally agree with that. Because the, these, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read them, but I mean, I would put them straight in the bin. Yes. And they really are the, 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 the closest thing to Pravda yep. uh, that, that one can imagine. And the fact that our uh, taxes are being used to fund that sort of thing, I think it's outrageous. They're boasting their achievements. It's not journalism in any form at all. I, I was I was trying to look for a counter argument to this because I assumed everyone would would agree that this you know that my gut reaction was that this is of course this is it, this is not a great thing. So uh, I, Tower Hamlets, who certainly used to produce a weekly publication, East London Life, it was called, and their defence was that local authorities have a duty, and I'm quoting here, have a duty to promote community cohesion race equality and reduce fear of crime. Oh, trumped, and up, uh, trumped up excuse. Well, well, especially if you're doing it 50 times a year, it seems that, you know, the volume and velocity and the regularity of that is it's totally un, unneeded. So uh, 
maybe there's you know there's an there's a kernel of truth in that's part of what they need to do but doing it 50 times a year seems uh, utterly ludicrous in my dim and distant past i was a local councillor for my sins for six years and i was elected many many years ago and i remember uh, the editor of the local paper in york where i was from he gave a little talk to the kind of newly elected councillors and he said the thing is you've got to understand about local newspapers we're not against you per se but you know, local council does something great. If we splash on that, that's not going to sell newspapers. But local council messes up again. If we splash on that, that will sell newspapers. So is this is this something about human nature then, that, that, that um, councils feel they can't get a fair hearing, that everything they're going to do is just either ignored or criticised? Well, that's the nature of news. I mean, they, they fail to understand what news is if, if, if they're complaining that, that, that they're not having sort of wonderful things said about them. I and mean, they should go to North Korea if, that, if they want only to have wonderful, a wonderful press praising them all the time. John, do you think there are sinister motives here then, that these, uh, these local free sheets are trying to put the local newspapers out of the business? Or do you think that they're just trying to promote a kind of alternate view and get their point across? I, I think you've got to ask big questions. If, if a local authority is producing a free sheet that comes out every single week, there is no need, in, in order to fulfil its democratic mandate of you know, uh, telling people about the services that it offers, it doesn't need to do it 50 times a year. So... I don't know what the motivation is there, but I would suggest it's, the motivation is not to provide some free and independent news, which is the thing that is badly needed. I mean, I remember being on a committee actually deciding this, that the council has a budget to advertise in the local newspaper because it has to make certain statutory um, announcements in terms of traffic announcements and roads and planning permission and so on. And, and they just took a view purely financially that we're spending 150 grand with a local newspaper, we can produce this for 120, get it delivered to every door, save the taxpayer money, you know, and also we can put in a few jollies in there as well at the front page saying, look, what a great job the mayor's doing. I mean, But, but saving... Uh, taxpayers' money—they they are weasel words, aren't they? When it comes to this, I, I mean, I really, I really think so. They should be advertising in the in the local paper, and there should be church and state in the local paper. You know, there should be this division. They should just because the uh, Sainsbury's or Tesco or whoever it is advertises in a national newspaper doesn't stop that national newspaper telling awkward stories about Sainsbury's and Tesco's, and the same thing applies. Maybe there hasn't been enough of a sort of cohesive coming together on, on, on this in terms of pressure group. And also it's very difficult to, to know what, what should be done. I mean, we all throw up our hands in horror and say that local authorities need to be better held to account by, by local journalism, but nobody's yet found a funding model which, which truly works for that. Well, as I always like to say at this point, we've run out of metaphorical tape on this podcast, so we're going to have to close there. But uh, Suzanne, how do people uh, get in touch with you? How do they follow you on Twitter? How do they keep up to date with the projects that you're working on? My Twitter handle is Suzanne H. Franks. And you can also look on my um, profile at City University, where I've got details of events that we've got coming up. Um, We've got a, a big discussion coming up on the future of the BBC, the BBC licence fee, for example. Um, and there are also details of, of all the publications and books and so on that I'm involved in. And people just go to the City University website and would they search for you? How, is there a uh, yes, if you just, um, just Google me, I'm on, on the City University website. John? Best place to find me is Twitter and it's John, J-O-N underscore Bernstein. My thanks to my two guests, Suzanne Franks and John Bernstein, and the associate producer, John Greenway. Please do visit our website at mediafocus.org.uk where you can sign up to receive regular updates. My name's Paul Blanchard. You can follow me on Twitter at Paul W.R. Blanchard. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. This